Now, so far, we've looked at two of the most dramatic encounters recorded in the Old Testament between God and one of his servants. But the most dramatic and wonderful revelation of God uh, was not actually what Isaiah saw, uh, nor even what Moses saw. The most dramatic revelation is in Christ himself, when God became man. And we read in Colossians 2.9, in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. It is in Christ that supremely God is manifested and revealed and comes to us, such that uh, Jesus can say in John 14.9, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So for 33 years, the Lord Jesus revealed God on earth. Uh, and that climaxed at the end of his life when he revealed the depths of God's love for us at Calvary and revealed the heights of God's power in his mighty resurrection. And the New Testament draws special attention to the appearances of the Lord Jesus, the resurrection appearances before he ascended. 1 Corinthians 15 lists the things of first importance. That's very helpful, isn't it? The Bible actually tells us some of those things that are actually at the very heart of everything else. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures and that he appeared and appeared and appeared and appeared. And that Scripture lists a whole number of appearances, some of which we don't even know from the Gospels, one of to 500 on one occasion. And there's something very significant about those resurrection appearances. Uh, in Acts, the message of the apostles is summed up in this way. They continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. It is fundamental to our testimony to Jesus that he who died on the cross is risen and has appeared. And our passage begins with those words. Afterwards, Jesus appeared again to his disciples. And that word appeared or manifested or showed himself comes three times in the first uh, 14 verses. It actually comes twice in verse 1, uh, not in the NIV, but it's there in the, in the Greek. Uh, afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples. It happened this way, as actually he appeared in this way. And at the end of the uh, account in verse 14, this was now the third time Jesus appeared, the same word. It was a disclosure. It was a deliberate act of God manifesting himself in Christ on earth. And there's another phrase that comes even more often, four times. Uh, and it's, uh, the phrase that in the Greek is, it is Jesus, or it is the Lord. So if you look in verse 4, uh, it says, early in the morning, 
Jesus stood on the shore, but his disciples did not realize. Now, in English, we would put it in the past tense, but in the Greek, it isn't. They did not realize that it is Jesus. And you'll notice that when they finally understand who it is in verse 7, John says, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, it is the Lord. And you see down in verse 12, the, the phrase comes again in the same form in the Greek. None of the disciples dared ask him who you are. They knew it is the Lord. So four times over, as it were, we're given the underlining of that point. It is the Lord. Now, none of us were there, but it is recorded for all of us who are here. There were real witnesses, real people. I mean, we even know many of their names, don't we? From verse uh, 1, uh, there was Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathaniel and the sons of Zebedee. Well, we know those are James and John and two other disciples. Uh, they were real people and they were in a real place. They were by the Sea of Tiberias and there was a real encounter. In Acts 2.32, Peter put it like this, God has raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of the fact. It is the Lord. But let's just uh, dwell on that first phrase. Afterwards, Jesus appeared again to his disciples. Uh, we could pass over it very quickly. Um, the reference to again, of course, refers us back to Verse 19 of chapter 20, on the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for the fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them. He manifested himself to them without any introduction, without opening the door. He was suddenly there in the midst of them. Verse 26, a week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas, who was absent previously, was with them. And though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and he said, peace be with you. He manifested himself to them yet again. And here he manifested himself uh, on the beach. But it is rather a wonderful statement. He appeared again to his disciples when you consider what sort of people the disciples were. You see, the first thing to say is that they were fearful men, weren't they? Look in chapter 20, verse 19, on the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews. After all, if they killed Jesus, why not his followers? Uh, when Jesus was arrested, they ran. Uh, Jesus told them in advance in chapter 16, 32, a time is coming and has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home. You will leave me all alone. These men had proved fearful in the crisis. I'm not saying that to suggest that we would not have been fearful. Uh, but it, they, they were not men who starred at the time of Jesus' trial. And they were failing men. I mean, look at the first who is named in chapter 21. Simon Peter. Uh, he is the leading character, really. He seems to be the one who took the initiatives here. Uh, he is the one who jumps into the water in verse 7 and drags the net in verse 11. Uh, and, and he is clearly the kind of uh, leading figure in responding to Jesus. And 
when we read the Gospels, we find that there was something about Peter that kind of made him jump in, sometimes feet first. Uh, but, but he was that sort of man. And yet, of course, in chapter 18, uh, we read the description of his threefold denial that he even knew Jesus. They were fearful. They were failing. And they had not understood. They had not understood. The resurrection was, as it were, a closed book to them in advance. It shouldn't have been. After all, they had the Old Testament prophecies. And, and as Jesus made plain, that was sufficient for them to have understood. But they didn't understand. You, that's actually there in Scripture, 20 verse 9. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. And when we look in the Gospels, we realize that not only did they have the Scripture, but Jesus had actually told them repeatedly, in detail, what would happen to him, including the fact that he would die, but also that he would rise on the third day. And even then, they did not take it in. None of them were expecting resurrection. So, you remember the words of the Lord Jesus on the road to Emmaus, to the two downhearted disciples. He said, how foolish you are, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? They had not understood about the resurrection. And of course, another reminder of that is, is the, the second name in the list down in verse 2. There's Thomas called Didymus. Uh, we tend to think of him as doubting Thomas. That's a bit unfair, really. But it, 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 of course, refers to the fact that up in verse 24, Thomas, who was one of the twelve, was not with the others when Jesus appeared on the first occasion. Uh, and they told him, we've seen the Lord, and he cannot take in that that is real. He said, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. There's a, there's a kind of determination not to believe it. Uh, he will not, he chooses not, he cannot, he will not believe it. Uh, and that is a response of one of the closest followers of Jesus. Uh, and then, of course, graciously, the Lord appears when Thomas is there, uh, and Thomas uh, sees Christ for himself in his risenness, and Thomas comes out with one of the great declarations in the whole of the Bible about Christ. Verse 28, my Lord and my God. Uh, so I think we should call him believing Thomas, don't you think? But he hadn't to begin with, you see. My point is that these disciples uh, had not understood in advance what they should have understood. Fearful, failing, not understanding, and, well, frankly, ordinary. I mean, look in verse 2 and 3. They, here they're, they're all named, all seven of them. Uh, verse 3, uh, they're together, Verse end of verse 2. They're together. They're, they're, what are they doing? Well, they're not really doing anything, are they? I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. Uh, and they said, we'll go out with you. So they, they went out and got into the boat. Um, 
they're together, but they're not exactly humming with zeal and purpose and hope. Um, they're like small boys kicking their heels on a long summer holiday because they're not quite sure what to do next. That's the feel of it. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter says, sort of default mode. That's what he'd been doing all his life. So he thought, well, I'm going to go out to fish. And they said, we'll go with you for want perhaps of anything better to do. And so they, they set out together. And so there's something very ordinary about these chaps uh, going out in their boats. And then on top of all that, they're unsuccessful. I mean, they can't even do what they should be good at. I mean, the, most of these guys have been fishing all their lives. And yet, verse 3, we read, um, they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. And you'll probably know that uh, uh, nighttime was the time uh, regarded as the best time to be fishing, that the ship fish were more likely to be on the surface. So they went at the best time, and they caught nothing. And they come back, and can you imagine, you've been up all night in a boat. Uh, they must have been tired. They were almost certainly wet, uh, and they had nothing to show for their labors. Um, everything kind of was pear-shaped, wasn't it? You ever had that experience where not only the big things go wrong, but all the little things seem to go wrong as well. You know, you lose your keys, and you can't find that thing you're looking for, and you forget somebody's name. Everything just sort of, everything little and everything big. And as far as we know, they were not praying. They were not praising. Uh, they weren't apparently doing anything faintly spiritual, you would have said. Um, I wonder if you feel yourself even this morning pretty ordinary, failing, unworthy, worn down, tired. Well, I think that's probably what they felt like. Now, is the risen Jesus really going to be interested in disciples like that? Well, let's look at the sort of person Jesus is, because when you look at the sort of people the disciples are, well, it's not all that encouraging. And if we stood here thinking about the sort of people we are, that might not be much more encouraging either. But when we look at the sort of person Jesus is, everything looks different. He comes. He comes. Uh, I mean, at first sight, that, that doesn't seem very dramatic. Uh, and it didn't appear dramatic. Uh, verse 4, that they're coming in, you see, in their little boat. And verse 4, early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it is Jesus. Jesus stood on the shore. The fishing boat's making its way home, and they can probably make out there's a figure on the shoreline, but it's as vague as that. And as undramatic as that, as undramatic as a man walking his dog by a lake. There's something very deliberate, though, isn't there? Uh, Jesus wasn't there by accident. Uh, he wants to be there. He wants to. Why does he want to be there? He wants to be there to relate to his disciples. Uh, the risen Jesus could just have returned to glory, couldn't he? Uh, okay, maybe he needed to somehow demonstrate the reality of his resurrection, but he could have done that in blazing glory and wonderful light and fantastic appearance. Uh, but there's something so ordinary about his coming. He's just on the shore waiting for the boat to come in. The one who was born in the back streets of Bethlehem and died among criminals at Calvary 
was now just a dim figure on the distant shore, and they don't realize it's Jesus. But he's there. But you see, we are in the know. We're told, verse 4, Jesus stood on the shore. They don't know that, but, but we do, though, do know that. It's Jesus. And in his risen person, Jesus associates with his people where they are. Jesus does not stand back. He comes to where we are. You see, he is unlike the, the powerful in this world. I've never tried to go and see David Cameron, but if I did, I guess I would imagine that one had to go to 10 Downing Street or the Houses of Parliament or somewhere else. Checkers, that would be nice. But, you see, the chances are pretty slim, and I would have to go where he's almost certainly not going to be ringing my doorbell. He's not going to come to where I am. But the Lord Jesus comes to where we are. Uh, he comes, as it were, to a conference center in Leicestershire today. And wherever you're going back to, and maybe it's where you're going back to that you need to know most. It's all, in a sense, very encouraging when we're all together in some special place, concentrating on the Lord and on his work together. But you need to know that back where you came from and back where you're returning and when you're all alone and when it's a grey, rainy day next week, if it is, <laughs> the risen Christ comes to where you are. He comes. Secondly, he speaks. You see, how do they encounter the risen Christ? There is Jesus. There is the boat coming in. They don't know it's Jesus. How do they encounter him? He called out to them. Verse 5, he called to them. Friends, haven't you any fish? See, they're too far away to make out his face. What reaches them is his words. And we encounter the risen Jesus in the same way. As we read his written word, his word crosses all the barriers, all the centuries, all the time, right to us this morning. We have his word. And Jesus speaks through his word. And just notice how he speaks. Look at that uh, first word. Uh, in the NIV, it's friends. In a number of other versions, it's children. Um, it, it, it's hard to really uh, translate. Perhaps lads would be best. It's something affectionate and rather informal. Lads, you haven't caught anything, have you? But it's affectionate. Here are these disciples, and they really haven't been the heroes of the times. And he relates to them with a, with a kind of warmth. There is something in the heart of the Lord Jesus that comes to failing people with warmth. And you need to know that. And he knows. You see, verse 5, haven't you any fish? It's quite a good translation. That we, we don't do it so clearly in English, but, but in Greek you can ask a question that expects a negative or you can ask a question that expects a positive. And this question is framed expecting a negative. You haven't caught any fish, have you? That, that's the sort of force of it. 
No, they answered. But you see, the very question says Jesus already knew. He knew without being told. He knew without them shouting back to him. And he always comes to us knowing. He, he knows us by name. Uh, and he knows the details of how we come. And he knows all the issues and struggles. He knows the things we don't know. He knows the numbers of hairs on our head. He knows us, you could say, ridiculously well. There's nothing in all creation hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. He, he knows. And he reigns. Now, what he says next is quite extraordinary. See, uh, up till now, well, uh, yes, it's interesting. He seems to know already, but it's the next thing that takes your breath away. Seems to me that if you read properly what Jesus says, you will always reach a point where you will say, that's extraordinary. See, so look in verse 6. He said, you see, this is the one thing they're certainly not expecting. He says, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. Have you heard, ever heard anything more ridiculous? I mean, they've been at it all night. They're fishermen. That's their job. The nighttime's the best time. And the fish have gone AWOL. They're not there. Or at least they are somewhere. But they're certainly not where their nets have been. And they've tried doing that all night. And this man, who isn't even in the boat, calls out to them, throw your nets on the right side. That's not on the left, but on the right. Have you ever heard of anything more ridiculous? Uh, except it wasn't ridiculous. He knew exactly where the fish were. And suddenly, the man on the beach ceases to be a dog walker. If this is true, if he can stand a hundred yards away, or hundreds of yards away, and say, if you throw your net on the right side, you will catch fish, and when they throw their net on the right side, what happens? They catch fish. They're unable to haul it in. Who can this be who stands on the shore? But God. Who else knows where the fish are? And all our problems and all their details lie this morning at Jesus' feet. If they hadn't taken his word seriously, they wouldn't have discovered, would they, who he was, what he could do for them. But when we take the words of the risen Christ seriously, we discover who he is and what he might do for us. It's the same for us, you see. Jesus comes to us with his word and he speaks to us and he invites us to respond to him. Make sure you're listening to him. Um, as a preacher, I know what it is to invest a lot of effort in trying to speak to others. There is always a danger in that. That every passage becomes a means by which you might talk to others. And you need to listen yourself first. And as the disciples obeyed, as they threw their net, perhaps despairingly, yet again, and suddenly 
the net is absolutely alive with hordes of fish and they can't even pull the thing in. Then John got it. Then the disciple Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. And Peter, true to form, plunges into the lake, verse 7, the first to get to the shore. See, it's all because Jesus speaks. And he still does. The third thing about the sort of person Jesus is, that he's, is this, that he's the same. See, why does John get it at the point when they throw their net on the right side? It's an important moment, isn't it? Verse 7. Uh, then the disciple, then he said it is the Lord. It's an important moment. You see, well, why does he get it? Well, this is deja vu. Um, it had all happened once before. You can read about it in Luke 5, 6 to 7. At the very beginning of Jesus' acquaintance with Peter and John, there had been another occasion uh, when Peter and Andrew, actually, and James and John had been fishing and they were cleaning their nets and they'd caught nothing all night, just the same sort of story. And Jesus said, go out again and put your, boat, your nets down on the right side and and he said, we've been fishing all night, but because you say so, and he went out and there were so many fish, the boats began to sink. And on that occasion, Peter fell on his knees before Jesus and he said, go away from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. See, it wasn't just the fish he saw. He suddenly saw something about Jesus that meant that he, that he wasn't even worthy to be in his presence. It's like Isaiah, when he saw the Lord high and lifted up. Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the Lord. Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. And it was all happening again. And as John heard that voice, and he saw the fish, he knew who it was. A hundred and fifty-three of them, verse 11. Yeah, absolutely. There were 152. I wonder how long it takes to count 153 slightly slithering wet fish. Well, I imagine that takes a bit of effort to count. Um, you see, they were marveling. Where had these chaps been? Just look at the size of them. And look how many there are. And one after another, they piled them up and counted them. They are savoring what Christ can do. And why did Jesus do it that way? I mean, he could have in all sorts of ways revealed himself. He revealed himself by telling them where the fish were. Well, because he's wanting them to remember and wanting them to know that he is the same Jesus. With the same power and the same knowledge and the same heart. Uh, and and that's, that's what we need to know. That when we read Jesus of Jesus in the Gospels, we are not looking at a different version of Jesus. We're looking at the same person. Yes, he, he was on earth in particular circumstances. But it is the same heart that he has. 
Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, Hebrews 13, 8. And that's why we need to read the Gospels. That's why we need to immerse our hearts in who Christ is forever the same. Fourthly, <coughs> he prepares what we need. Look in verse 9. Uh, the, the, Peter does a runner straight into the water, onto the beach. The other disciples follow in the boat more sensibly. Uh, towing the net full of fish. <coughs> and verse 9, when they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish uh, on it and some bread. Jesus said, bring some of the fish that you have caught. Verse 12, he said, come, he said to them, come and have breakfast. Verse 13, Jesus came, he, he took the bread and he gave it to them. And he did the same with the fish. Seven men, and he, he serves each of them personally with the bread and with the fish. Um, it's, it's amazing, isn't it? I mean, w how might Jesus have revealed himself? What spectacular way he might have displayed his risenness and his glory to them? How he, he could have blazed in such a light that they would have fallen on the ground and and instead, Jesus gives them breakfast. And I love that. I love the kind of down-to-earthness of Jesus. He knows that what we need is breakfast. Um, he knows the run of the mill, the daily need of his children. Sleep and rest and food and quiet and kindness. And the ordinary meal, of course, tells us something very beautiful about Jesus. To make a meal for someone, especially in an ancient culture, when Middle Eastern culture, significant gesture of friendship and acceptance. This isn't a meal that, it's not self-catering. They don't have to make it. He makes it. I mean, they do. he does use some of their fish. But it's he who makes it. It's he who's lit the fire. It's he who has it all going already. It's he who serves them in person. They sit down and the risen Jesus gives them Give some breakfast. Now, I don't know what you need this morning, but Jesus knows. And he knows how to give you the very basics. A number of occasions, he fed his disciples, didn't he? He fed 5,000 followers on one occasion. Another occasion, 4,000 plus plus, all the women and the children. He served the food to the two in Emmaus. He was, he was the guest, but he, he kind of took over, didn't he? He served the Lord's Supper. He served here at the beach. Revelation 19.9 says, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. You see, breakfast wasn't their ultimate need. Breakfast isn't our ultimate need. All of these things speak of something bigger than simply the food on the plate. That's not to despise the food. Because that does come from God. And Jesus, of course, said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never grow hungry, and who believes in me will never be thirsty. Supremely, he 
met our need not by giving food, but by giving himself. And of course, when you think of it, he is the food of life. So he does not only give breakfast on the beach for seven disciples 2,000 years ago, but that act of breakfast on the beach, that barbecue on the beach, is a message to disciples through all the generations that he knows what to give us. And he gives us what we need most. And he has prepared not just food on a beach, but he has prepared a home in heaven. He has prepared a place for you. He has prepared glory forever. He has prepared beyond our wildest dreams. And he will meet our needs forever and ever. So who do I go to in my need? I go to him. He prepares. Fifthly, he searches. He searches the heart. It seems that after breakfast, verse 15, when they'd finished eating, uh, Jesus goes for a walk with Peter. You ever been on a walk with someone? Uh, someone who uh, is going on that walk for your benefit. And you pick up that they were walking from verse 20 because we read that Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. John wasn't wanting to miss out. He was kind of following. Well, you can't follow people who are just sitting down. It, it does indicate that they were going for a walk along the beach, perhaps. Uh, and, Jesus, and John is following them. And Jesus has a question three times over. Verse 15, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Verse 16, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? Verse 17, do you love me for the third time? He doesn't use identical phrasing each time, but the linguistic variations are almost certainly not the point. The point is that just as Peter with oaths had denied knowing Jesus three times over in various terms of phrase, Jesus asks him the same key question correspondingly three times over, do you love me? And he asks him till it hurts. Verse 17, the third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was, was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? Why do you go on and on asking the same question? We need to know that sometimes Jesus hurts us. He doesn't shrink from hurting us. To get at our hearts. It's the only way, isn't it? To get at our hearts sometimes. He doesn't talk to Peter about his gifts. He doesn't talk to Peter about his strategy. He doesn't talk to Peter about the courage he needs to have now. He doesn't talk to Peter about his knowledge. He doesn't talk to Peter about any area of his competence. He asks him a question about his heart. Do you remember Demas, Paul's co-worker? And in that tragic comment in the last chapter Paul ever wrote, he said, Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me. 
So you, you can serve Jesus. You, you can be there at the thick of things. You can be there serving alongside the Apostle Paul and your heart can be in the wrong place. He loved this world and he deserted it. Now, I don't know in what sphere you're serving the Lord Jesus, but I do know that this is the key question for all of us. Jesus asks us, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Missionary or short-termer or council member or staff member or mission supporter, believer, Jesus has the same question. Do you love me? Because nothing else can compensate if you don't. Do you love me? And sixthly, he perseveres. Surely that's one of the great messages of the whole chapter. He, he perseveres with these failing people and he perseveres with Peter. He has probed Peter's heart. He's taken the scalpel to his heart. But at the same time, even as he probes his heart, he reasserts Peter's calling, Peter's task, three times over as well. Look in verse 16, G verse 15, Jesus said, feed my lambs. Verse 16, take care of my sheep. Uh, verse 17, feed my sheep. The Lord will use Peter. We could have listed some reasons why he might not have used Peter. But the Lord seems determined that Peter will serve God's purposes. That Peter will be one of God's agents. Peter will stand on the day of Pentecost. Peter will walk the streets of Jerusalem and his shadow will seem to have, well, will have healing power. Peter will raise Tabitha from the dead. Peter will be the great apostle to his people. And Peter will end up being the apostle to many others as well. And will write his letters. And will end up in Rome executed by the Romans. Peter, he will use Peter. We saw that with Moses. <laughs> Moses said, who am I? Moses said, please send someone else. But no, God is going to use Moses. Isaiah, seeing the Lord, he ends up saying, woe is me. I do for the scrap heap. I, I cannot stand before this God. And yet he is the one that God is going to send. And here it is, Peter. God seems absolutely determined to use weak people. And if we're among them, as we are, that's the secret of Christian usefulness. It's God's determination to use the weak. And the task is not only the proclamation of the gospel message, which, of course, Peter, by the Holy Spirit, does with extraordinary power on, uh, repeatedly, but of course most notably in Acts 2 where 3,000 come to faith in one day. But the task given to the disciples in Matthew 28 is to make disciples of all nations. And that's what 
we therefore, as believers, are engaged in, not only to bring the message to, but then to disciple those who respond to care for the sheep, the flock, that belongs to the great shepherd. Feed my lambs, feed my sheep. The work of mission is to see people not only hear the gospel, but to grow into spiritual maturity. And this language of feeding resonates with what Jesus has just done for Peter. Jesus has just fed his disciples, but he's not going to be there to go on feeding his disciples on the beach. He's telling Peter, you've got to do it. You've got to do it. Shortly, he's returning to glory, and Peter then stands, as it were, in Jesus' place, if we can say that reverently. He, he comes to do what Jesus did, and when anyone shepherds the flock of God, he is feeding God's people. He is in some way representing Jesus himself. That's why it's a, something we should do with trembling and fear. We shepherd God's people by feeding them with God's word. But Jesus perseveres, and he will persevere with you too. And Jesus finally is sovereign to the end. John's gospel ends with Jesus speaking of the future. He speaks of Peter's future, verses 18 to 19. I tell you the truth. When you are younger, you dressed yourself and went where you want. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. He's looking to Peter's future. Verse 22, he talks about John's future because Peter asks him, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what's that to you? You must follow me. The, the future of Peter and the future of John, he's about to leave them. It would be, it's very natural for their minds to wonder how they're going to make out. What do they need to know? What they need to know is that all the future lies in Jesus' hands. See, what are you going back to? What's going to happen? Well, you can hazard a guess or two, but you don't know. In fact, sometimes you end up doing and being engaged in all sorts of things you never dreamt would happen. And some of you have said, you know, things look so different this year compared to last year. Sometimes within a year, everything can change. But while we never know the future, he always knows the future. And he doesn't just know it. He controls it. His sovereignty extends forever. His sovereignty extends to the end of their lives in verse 19 and to the day of his return, verse 22, the day I return. And everything in between, now and then, is within the sovereignty of Jesus Christ. His sovereignty you will never outrun. You'll never be operating in some sort of space where your Lord is not already reigning. You will never come across any future which takes him by surprise. All futures are under his hands. And his sovereignty extends to the hardest and to the worst. Verse 18 and 19. When you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. He said this to indicate the kind of death 
by which Peter would glorify God. Glory and death don't seem to go together very much in our minds, but it seems as though glory and death do go together in God's mind. And his sovereignty extends to the end. This, as you can see, isn't a prosperity gospel in the normal definition of the word. It's ultimate prosperity, but it's not human prosperity. Uh, God's sovereignty extends to what seems to be disasters and horrors, descends, extends to crucifixion and stoning and execution and old age and death and dissolution of this body. But even then, Christ never lets him go. Later in 2 Peter 1, Peter calls this his exodus. In the English versions, it says departure. But I don't think that's nearly as good as exodus. Because exodus is, is about leaving the world of, of, of sin and struggle and slavery and entering and going into the land of promise. And that's what Peter has in mind. And he sees that somehow his death is not the end. It is not his it is not his full stop. It's not the horror of nothingness. It is the step into glory. It is my exodus, he says. And if you remember on the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses and Elijah discussed with Jesus the uh, same word, his exodus. Jesus made an exodus. Peter made an exodus. Those blessed men, Ridley, Latimer, and Cranmer, made an exodus in the flames in Oxford. They made an exodus. And not a hair of their heads is singed, according to Christ. See, Psalm 139, 16, all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. I remember talking to a widow whose husband had just been killed on a foggy night in steep hill in Bath. And she said to me that people had been telling her that Satan had won a victory. And I immediately thought of this verse. And I said to her, oh no, all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. No, it's the Lord who controls the worst. And his sovereignty extends to all that is unknown. I think that's the force of verse 22 to 23. Peter looks back, you see, and he sees John, verse 20, following. And he's curious. You know, what's going to happen to him, Lord? Um, we are sometimes curious, aren't we, where our curiosity doesn't really need to go. Uh, what about him, verse 21? Uh, and Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what's that to you? You follow me. See, whatever his plans for John was not what mattered for Peter. But Jesus is not saying, oh, well, you know, I haven't got that bit sorted yet. Now, Jesus isn't saying that at all. In fact, he's saying the contrary. If I want him to remain alive until... If that's what I wanted, that is what will happen in the future. I, I have a sovereignty 
over what every, everything that will happen to John is also in my control. But you don't need to know that part. But I'm still in control of it. See, sometimes we see God's sovereignty in remarkable ways. Sometimes it's as though the clouds open and there's a singular providence. I, I'm sure we've all had experiences of singular providences. And, and you look back and say, that's remarkable. I remember being late for a plane in Nairobi. and My hosts were very kind, but kind of slow off the mark. And I was arriving at this airport, looking at my watch, thinking, good gracious, what's going to happen here? And I arrived at the check-in desk. And the lady looked at me and she said, I'm sorry, sir. We'll have to put you in business class. <laughs> well, I have to say, this tragedy rather appealed to me. <laughs> and I ended in business class, which was the best journey I've ever made in the air, and I sat next door. There was this, you know, comfortable seat and comfortable distance, but talkable too. A man next to me, a businessman come from Colombia, and we were chatting away, and he was asking me what was I doing in Kenya, and I'd been speaking at a student conference, and the speaker had fallen through. They wouldn't have thought of me otherwise, but in desperation, I got a phone call. Uh, uh, anyway, I ended up in this wonderful speaking to this, this wonderful Christian group. So I told him I was a preacher, you see, and that led into a little conversation. And just before I'd left home, I'd slipped into my uh, briefcase uh, a gospel. Uh, it was one of these rather nice creative publishing, nice picture of somewhere on the front and that sort of stuff. I think it was John's gospel. So I said, uh, uh, would you mind if I uh, gave you this, you see, because it will tell you much more about what I'm talking about. And he took it, and suddenly... He looked at the cover and he said, that's my house. That's my house. It's a photograph of Bogota, the capital of Colombia. And it happened to have his house in the photograph. And I sat there somewhat dazed. But you see, and I went home thinking God controls the details of what publishers put on the front of their picture and whether you sit next to a man from Bogota in a seat you weren't meant to have. And I thought, wow, God is sovereign over the details. But you know, I don't normally see that. Not in that way. But it's just as true when we don't see. Isn't that the point? And generally, we don't see the providences of God laid out in a row so we may be amazed. Just occasionally, God shows us so we're reminded that he is in control, but he's just as much in control where nothing dramatic seems to happen and nothing is so clear. And I'm reminded of Isaiah 50, verse 10. Who among you fears one of the servant songs? Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the word of his servant? And then it says something we're just not expecting. Let him who walks in the dark, who has no light, trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. But now, all you who light fires and provide yourselves with flaming torches... Go walk in the light of your fires and of the torches you have set ablaze. This is what you shall receive from my hand. You will lie down in torment. 
sobering word. But you see, the man who makes his own light ends in torment. And the man who walks with no light but trusts in the name of the Lord and relies on his sovereign God when he can't make sense of what's happening at all but goes on knowing that his God reigns even then. That's the man God blesses. That's the man God honors. And that needs to be true of us when the sovereignty of God is not evident but still true. And you need to take that back to your situation and know that God is absolutely in control when you don't see it. And finally, he commands. Jesus' last words to, G to Peter recorded in John's Gospel, there in verse 22, you must follow me. And it's actually the second time he said it because you look in verse 19, and then he said to Peter, having spoken of his death, he does not say, well, in the light of that, you might want to reconsider. He said, then he said, follow me. The last words of Jesus to Peter recorded here in John, follow me. Whatever are his plans for John is not relevant for Peter, but what Peter is to concentrate on is that he is to follow Jesus. And that's his command always. And that's how it all began for Peter by the same lake three years earlier. You read in Mark 1, 16, as Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said. That was Jesus' first word to Peter. Come, follow me. That's Jesus' last word to Peter. Come, follow me. And Peter did. Peter followed him. And he followed him. And he followed him. And he followed him to the end. And he's following him still. And the Lord's word to all of us, to the newest disciple and the oldest believer, is follow me. Maybe you're here and you're, you're an older believer. And all the exciting things seem now to happen to younger people. They're the ones at the cutting edge. They're the ones who stand at the front and tell stories of what God is doing. And your, you know, your, your kind of past history. Don't you believe it? Come follow me. Something very powerful about the testimony of an older believer who is so evidently still following Jesus. We belong to a little church and most of our folk are in their 20s or 30s, the little children. And we have one 90-year-old. He comes with his wife. He comes with two, a stick. And uh, he has to have special hearing things because he can't hear. And he is full of zeal and love for Jesus. Last week, he went to Glastonbury to street, preach in the streets. He was in Malawi as a missionary and then became a street preacher in the rough places in the UK. And there's something about him that always challenges me. I want to be following Jesus when I'm, when I'm 92. Follow me. This is our Lord. This is our God. This is our Savior. This is our King. And he has not changed. He still comes to where we are. 
He still speaks across all the barriers to us. He's still the same. He still prepares what we most need. He still searches our hearts and asks us for our love. He still perseveres with failing disciples. He's still sovereign over all the details. And he still commands us, can we not hear him? Follow me. Amen. Lord, we so much want to be disciples who trust this Lord Jesus, this beautiful Lord Jesus, this wonderful Savior, this incomparable Master. Lord, we pray for your forgiveness for hearts that are so prone to lose the clarity of our vision of you, that are so prone to be responding with little faith instead of great faith, with limited love instead of great love. Lord, have mercy on us. And Lord, we worship you that you had mercy on Peter and you persevered with him. And we believe you will persevere with us and we ask you to help us to follow you so that all our days and however, whatever our age, we may still put our hand in your hand and follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.